0: The following message is entitled Hourglass Mercy Power Unleashed Part 5. This message was given during the morning service on October 9th, 2022 at the East Side Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois by Pastor John Stevens. We're back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the middle Sundays of the month, which means only one this month one one sermon today will be in 1st Timothy because next Sunday we have God's helping hands here and uh, the following Sunday the 23rd we're not here and so we will not pick up this series from 1st Timothy again after this morning until the next middle Sunday of the month which would be uh, November 13th this is a series on verse by verse phrase by phrase on a study of 1st Timothy and I've entitled this entire series Looking at 1 Timothy, the kind of church God wants, this is an epistle with the other two pastoral or church epistles, 2 Timothy and Titus, that instructs churches of all ages, all times, all cultures, all ethnicities, all languages, how a local church is supposed to run and how Christians are to behave in those churches. This is transcendent truth. It is not to be jettisoned because of time or culture, because God wrote this. This is for all ages. We're still in the first priority, and will be for quite a while, the first priority of a local church is listed in those that are here at church in their outline sheet, priority number one, God wants true teachers and pure doctrine in our churches, and that covers the entire first chapter of 1 Timothy. That is the overriding subject all the way through verses 3 down to 20 after the introduction. And that is what we're looking at, this first priority. God wants true teachers and pure doctrine in our churches, something that, of course, the evangelical church today does not consider a top priority. But it is the first and greatest priority of what God says a local church is to be dealing with. Underneath that first priority in our note sheet, the church was founded by Christ and the apostles, and that's where we are finishing up today, verse 2, finishing up mercy and peace most likely today. The tri-power of salvation... Tri-power number one in verse two is grace. Tri-power number two is mercy that we're in currently. And then thirdly, peace, which I've done so many extensive studies on peace for a year and a half in two different topics on peace for the plague period that I will only be spending a few minutes on that third one since I've already covered it. Today's sermon title continues then from the previous sermon on this topic, The Hourglass Mercy Power Unleashed. This is part five. And we're continuing to look at, in your introduction, the lessons from the hourglass of God's mercy. There's an hourglass picture in your note sheet because mercy runs out. There is a deadline on mercy for unsaved and for saved. So in verses one, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, let's read it and then focus back in on these lessons on mercy after I read verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 1, we've already looked at the uh, study of the Apostle Paul's life, letter A under your outline, and then we also looked at the first part of verse 2, a study of Pastor Timothy's troubled ministry life. And now we 're looking at this great trilogy that empowers god 's service uh, god 's servants to live for him and to serve him. Grace, mercy, and peace. So in the introduction, let's review some of the lessons we 've already learned about mercy. Lesson number one, we learned from the Old Testament the hourglass of mercy and Saul that there is no mercy for an apostate. This is something Christians have an extremely difficult time either believing or wrapping their head around this concept. It is impossible for an unbelieving apostate to be saved. That is a Jude fact of sad life. We looked at that. Lesson number two, the hourglass of mercy in Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a born-again Christian, truly saved, a born-again believer, and, uh, but he was backslidden during this period that we studied and was in rebellion Because of his associations, he looked exactly like Saul, but yet he was a believer. An apostate and a rebellious believer can look exactly the same. And as we learned in lesson two, there's no mercy for rebellious believers until they repent. Once they repent, then God's chastisement turns to mercy once again. Lesson three that we've seen in the hourglass of God's mercy, and that is defining what the hourglass is, and I've given it to you with lesson three. There in your note sheet, there's a time limit to God's mercy, and he doesn't tell us when that limit has been achieved. He decides when it is. Well, how would we ever know if we were under God's chastisement or still under his mercy? That was lesson four that we studied. We can only tell when mercy is run out from God by observing the evidences in a believer's life of rebellion. If we show the evidences of rebellion, then we know we've moved from God's mercy to God's chastisement. In the middle of the movie, so to speak, I stopped in Lesson 5 and reminded you exactly what divine mercy is. Lesson 5, mercy is Elias. It means pity and compassion upon those who deserve to be judged or chastised. And I reminded you of those truths from Scripture. Lesson 6, last sermon, the offer of mercy to mankind is unconditional. Obviously, anyone can be saved if they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the offer is universal to all of unsaved mankind to be saved, that is mercy. However, Lesson 7, as we finished up our study last month, the reception of mercy is conditional. So on the two lines under Lesson 7, let's recap. The first blank line, the condition for the lost. The second blank line under Lesson 7, the conditions for mercy for believers. So first line, the condition condition of mercy for the lost. In order for unsaved man to receive mercy, it is conditioned upon them repenting and receiving Christ by faith. So the offer of mercy is universal, but the reception requires a condition. So Lesson 6, the offers to everyone to be saved, but the reception is conditional for the lost upon repenting and receiving Christ by faith. Either receive his only offer of mercy through Christ or die eternally in hell. So it is conditional, the reception. That was Lesson 7. Second line, what is a conditional receptivity for believers? Well, they have to receive sanctifying mercy by walking in holiness. The reception of mercy is conditioned for believers upon walking in holiness. So believers will lose mercy from the Lord if they stop walking in holiness and thus end up in rebellion. Let's go on to lesson eight for this morning. New material as we finish up these lessons this morning. Lesson number eight on the hourglass of God's mercy. Fill in the blanks. Mercy is sympathy for our sin plight but his his mercy is not divine excusing of sin. Mercy is sympathy for our sin plight, but his mercy is not divine excusing of sin. Christians many times confuse this idea of God is merciful towards us as believers, therefore he's excusing my sin. No, sympathy does not mean excusing of sin. We knew this when our children were young and we were in the process of spanking them. Our hearts many times were more sad and broken than they were. We cried many times when we would have to chastise our children, tell them to bend over and get a spanking. It wasn't to uh, judge them, it was to help correct them and many times our hearts were broken but it didn't stop the spanking. It does relate this lesson number eight to parenting as we'll see in a moment but that's at least an initial understanding for you to grasp this concept you can be very sad in your heart towards christians who are living in rebellion but that does not excuse their sin so are we clear on this if not you need to write it down under lesson eight sympathy and sadness towards sinners rebels does not excuse their sin put that in the blank lines under number eight Sympathy or sadness towards rebellious Christians and their sin does not excuse their sin. Please don't ever excuse sin with sympathy. Don't put those two together and say sympathy leads to the justifying of sin. That's just not true. This is a major hurdle on mercy. God feels sad when we sin. The Spirit of God is grieved by our sin, but that does not make it okay. You would be surprised how many Christians In counseling formally or individually have handed me that line from our church here I'm living under mercy it doesn't matter if I sin it's all excused under the blood no it is not excused now let's see if we can justify this let's look at some things okay let's just in general start with before we get to letter A under that let's just start with some passages to understand from an Old Testament perspective this was true as well Jeremiah chapter 30 Go there, Jeremiah 30. We're going to move fast through these passages and not spend a lot of time on every passage. There's many scriptures to look at. So move quickly with me if you can. Jeremiah chapter 30. The Lord, in a position of judgment for rebellious Israel, is declaring to them truths through Jeremiah 30, through Jeremiah the prophet. Look at verse 11. Jeremiah 30, verse 11. For I'm with you, declares the Lord to save you. That's unconditional. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. So notice, I am with you to save you, at the beginning of verse 11. But look at the end of verse 11. But I will chasten you justly, and will by no means leave you unpunished. So the Lord has always declared that Israel will ultimately be saved, but chastisement still takes place. Look at verse 14. All your lovers have forgotten you, talking to Israel metaphorically. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Just because they are his sovereign nation does not mean that God does not chastise. And look at the future, verse 17. For I will restore you to health and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion. No one cares for her. The implication is God does care. He has sympathy. So in the midst of a passage talking about chastisement and punishment, he still wraps it up with this idea of he cares, even though the nations don't. Go to the right, Nahum, the book of Nahum. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Nahum chapter 1. We never want to excuse care and sympathy with an excusing of sin in our own lives or the lives of others. Nahum chapter 1 verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Verse 2, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now look at the mercy in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, that's mercy, and great in power, but... And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And whirlwind and storm is his way. And clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. That's judgment. So we have here, again, mercy still requires punishment for rebellion. Mercy requires punishment for rebellion. Letter A in your note sheet, then. Let's get more specific on this lesson. Mercy does not negate divine chastisement. Mercy does not negate divine chastisement. And neither should it in church discipline or parenting. Mercy does not negate divine chastisement and neither should it in church discipline or parenting. Why those two areas? Those are the greatest misunderstanding and rebellion against truth concerning this issue of mercy that you will ever see in churches and in believers. Believers who absolutely are enraged and outraged by the concept of church discipline. Where is the love and where is the mercy? And then in parroting. Christian parroting. I never spank, I never correct my children, I live under mercy and grace. Again, the concept is, since we are to be sympathetic with rebels and disobedience, we're to excuse their sin. I can cry over one's sin without excusing it. It is a stumbling block issue that has never changed among so many even within our own church. Church discipline is renounced as unloving and cruel and parenting I will not spank because I believe in love and mercy. That is a capitulation into the concept that grief and sympathy over one's disobedience means I am to ignore it and excuse it. The Bible never teaches that. Let's start in the New Testament and look at some passages. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We're still to carry out church discipline, even though we can sympathize and grieve over the rebellion. Look at verse 12. Matthew 18, verse 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, And one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? Uh, The idea of going astray is planes. It comes from our word planet. It refers to wandering away. This is disobedience and rebellion. Verse 13, If it turns out he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. Is this sympathy? Is this mercy? Is this God seeking after rebellious believers? yes. The shepherd always goes after the sheep he loves verse 14 so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish this is not referring to hell here this is referring in context to spiritually falling rebellion because it says one of these little ones the little ones are his sheep the context is he's the shepherd and these are his sheep he's referring to believers who are disobedient so we see sympathy in verses 12 to 14 right would we all agree with that? Grief over the wandering land by God? Correct? Yeah. God grieving over this, so he excuses it, right? No. The same context, look at verse 15, talking about the wandering sheep. If your brother sins, this is continuous and ongoing and unrepentant, go and show him his fault in private. This is how you chase after a sheep that's wandered. Okay? This is church discipline. Okay, This is how you chase after them. This is the context. You chase after the lamb. How? This way. It's a wandering believer. You go after them. Notice the shepherd goes after the sheep. You don't wait for the brother to come to you. You go after them. That's, see, the context is exactly the same. as 12 to 14. The shepherd doesn't stand when he sees a, a little lamb wandering out of the fold towards the wolves. Oh, well, I'll just wait for him to come to me. Shepherd goes after verses 12 to 14. That's what God does. He goes after wandering lambs. But he does it through the church in verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins, we go after them. That's what you're supposed to do. This is rebellion you're going after. Show him his fault in private. Now, you have to know that he's a brother. There's many that claim to profess salvation in a church that we as a church don't go after because there's no fruit of salvation. We don't see any evidence of conversion. So this has to be someone who is a known brother in Christ, and he's sinning continuously. Show him. You go after him, talk to him in private. This is step number one. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. See, you notice there's sympathy in context, in grief, but still confrontation. Is this not clear? To say I reject church discipline as unloving and not forgiving of sin is a direct defiance against clear passages like this. Step 2, verse 16, if he does not listen to you, which is usually the case with rebels, take one or two more with you. So that would be one plus one is two. Two plus one is three. So that's two or three. Did you get that? I did that math fast. You take one. So you're going with one. That's two. Or you, one, take two. That's three. Did you catch that? That's two or three witnesses. The person who's getting another witness Or two other witnesses. Do you see that? If he does not listen to you, you take one, that's two, or you take two, that's three. Why do I keep repeating that? Because of the infamous verse 20 that we will get to in a moment. Take one or two more with you, so that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed of what is rebellion? Rebellion. You're going predominantly to confront them and witness the rebellion. What is the rebellion? Any sin that refuses to be repented of, and it's combined with a refusal to listen to those that are confronting him. A refusal to accept admonishment is rebellion. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The church is mentioned here one of the rare times before Acts chapter 2 when the church was actually founded. This is prophetical for instruction for the future of the church when it comes into being in the book of Acts. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So there's stages of confrontation. Does this mean we have no mercy or sympathy? Of course we sympathize with rebels. We know that but by the grace and mercy of God, we'd all be in rebellion. It still has to be confronted. This is not, you're going to get it. This this is not kicking people out of the church. This is seeking to get them to listen so that they will repent. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Were Gentiles and tax collectors allowed to fellowship with the church? Sure. Are unbelievers allowed to continue in the church as well? Yes. We don't kick out those that are final stage church discipline and tell them to get out unless they're doing something criminal in the context of the building here or endangering people's lives or disrupting services. That would be different. But we don't, even when we finish with church discipline, we don't kick people out. I've had people tell me that repeatedly. People who should know better in this church have told me when we church discipline, we kick people out. We don't do that. We never tell them to leave the church. Ever. We tell them that they're considered as unbelievers now and they're given over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. God and Satan will now deal with you. That's what we tell them. We never tell them to leave. This is a strongholded issue of rebellion in our church, an attitude that says, this is what Pastor John and the elders have done over the years. They've kicked all these people out. We never kicked anyone out that was church disciplined. Well, they left. Yeah, they quit. We can't stop them from doing that. If a lamb wants to continue to go across the pasture and into the wolf fold, we can't stop them. It's amazing to me how many times I've had Christians, even recently, tell me Well, I never really agreed with your doctrine of church discipline where you kick people out. That's a direct quote. Why would somebody slander the elders like that? I don't understand that. This is sympathy but yet has to be confronted. What do we want them to do to repent and get restored? How is that not loving? Why would you not want the lamb to return to the shepherd and be away from the wolves? That's hate. See, the whole mentality today is in the church, if we're confronting, we hate. We're never to admonish or to judge. That's not what the Bible teaches. Even when Christ said, judge not that you be not judged, he says only if you don't take the log out of your own eye. If you do that, then you're able to judge others. So, truly I say to you, whatever, verse 18, is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's in reference to church discipline, folks. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done by them for the Father who is in heaven. That's not a prayer verse. Please, please, I beg of you, don't use this verse in your daily prayer time. Two or three are gathered in prayer, meeting Lord now, so we're praying to you this. You know, one person can pray something and God will answer it. I'm very thankful that if I was a Christian living on a desert island all by myself, according to the misinterpretation of verse 19, I'd say, Oops, God, I can't really pray because I need two or three. What was the math of verse 16 you take one take two that's two or three what's the math in verse 19 if two of you agree together verse 20 for where two or how many three have gathered in my name i will be in their midst that is god in the midst of a church congregation carrying out church discipline that's not prayer now you could sit here and say well i like it to apply to prayer oh sure sure Let's take any verse and just pull it out of context, and because it makes me feel good, I think I'll apply it to my life. When the Bible says, go there, that means I'll just go there on Sundays and not do anything at church. When the Bible says, be receptive, I'll just go to a bar, and it means receiving all the alcohol I can drink. We could take any verse and make it lawlessly apply to ourselves out of context, The purpose of this church and this pulpit has been to as accurately as we can take the context of passages and apply it the way they are. And you can't get out from under verses 19 to 20 having nothing to do with corporate prayer. It's church discipline. That's sympathy without excusing sin. 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Man is rebelling in sin as a believer. Verse 1, among you, immorality among you. So the church, the Corinthian church is godless. You want to know one of the marks of a godless local church? They refuse to do church discipline. That's actually a mark of a godless church. We've been accused as a church of being godless because we carry out church discipline. Isn't that astounding? It's absolutely astounding. So the Corinthian church is completely trashed. In fact, they're not only not church disciplining their guy, they're partying off with the guy. They think this is great what he's doing. It says in verse 2, you become arrogant and aren't mourned. They're probably doing what many Christians do today. Love covers a multitude of evils, Peter says, so who are we to judge? So Paul has to carry it out in verse 3 himself, apostolically, for I, on my part, though absent in body, But present spirit have already judged him who has committed this. Notice that is judgment on a believer. I thought believers are never judged. They can't be judged to hell, but they can be judged in this life. Remember, Peter told us this as well. Judgment begins first with the household of God. There is a judgment on the church. It's called chastisement. He's carrying out church discipline on this guy. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Notice, it's not to kick him out of the church so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I thought he was already a believer. He is. But if the church discipline doesn't bring repentance or death, that proves that he wasn't a believer. The goal of church discipline is to get repentance. That's what he means. It proves that he's saved for the day of the Lord Jesus. 12 verse 13 says, Those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked from among yourselves. What does that mean to remove the wicked from among yourselves? Doesn't it mean to kick them out? Remove them from issues of service. You can't fellowship with a rebellious believer. But it doesn't mean you kick them out of church attendance. We've had to strip believers of ministry positions in the past because you can't be a rebellious believer under church discipline and consider yourself worthy to continue to serve we've encouraged them though we're not draconian that this type of person should never take communion But we're not gonna stand hovering over a rebel if they're sitting here and they decide they want to take the cup as well If they want to invite death upon themselves that's their choice this is very plain Hebrews chapter 12 this is the balance of grief over rebellion but not the excusing of sin. Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 4, we're supposed to resist with all our efforts and the power of the spirit sin. Hebrews 12:4. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. But then it seems things take a turn for the worst inevitably. Verse 5. And also could be translated, but you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. This is one of the major marks of rebellion. Forgetting exhortation. If you sit under the teaching of the word, are never convicted, always forget it. That's a mark of rebellion. So this type of forgetful, not resisting sin type of believer, he says all believers, verse 4, need to resist sin more than we are. But if you have forgotten the exhortation to resist sin, you're in trouble. So if you're not resisting sin in your life, you're in big trouble. And so am I. Because then the discipline of the Lord takes place. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So does God care for us? Is he sympathetic? Does he grieve over our sin? Does he still discipline? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Go back to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. What happens to a sinner that is sinning as a believer willfully? We, in verse 26, Hebrews 10, 26 is referring to we believers. The four at the beginning of verse 26 connects it to those who are believers and what they should be doing in verses 23 to 25. Let us, verse 23. Let us, verse 24. Let us, verse 22. And then the not forsaking of fellowship, verse 25, which is a plain mark of rebellion right there in verse 25. So in verse 26, he continues on with this group of believers. If we are believers sinning willfully, that's the definition of a of a rebel, Christian, after they've already been saved. This is not fake believers, this is not Jewish apostates, these are true believers. The, the context tells us that. How does it tell us that? Look at verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the foot of the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was what? Do unbelievers get sanctified? No. This is proof that it's referring to a rebellious Christian. And then at the end of verse 30, the Lord will judge who? His people. Are unbelievers his people? No. No. Referring to believers. And what is the first evidence of chastisement and judgment upon a rebellious believer? Verse 27 terrifying expectation of judgment. The loss of assurance of salvation, holy terror as it's called. Where the Spirit of God strips any assurance of salvation. That's why the warning in verse 35 is don't throw away your assurance. Don't throw it. Confidence is the New Testament word for assurance of salvation. You can throw assurance away. You can't throw eternal security away, which is God saves you unconditionally and you can't lose your salvation, but you can throw away assurance. And when you throw away insurance because of verse 26, being a willful sinner, refusing to repent, then the loss of assurance, throwing it away, results in verse 27 with a terrifying expectation of judgment and of hell major sign that a true believer is in rebellion. If there is no terrifying expectation of judgment and this person is a willful sinner without any terror of hell, living in willful rebellion, that person's an apostate. They're unbelievers. Let her be in your note sheet under lesson eight. So biblical chastisement is not punishment, whether parenting or Church discipline. It is not punishment, whether with parenting or with church discipline. We don't go to rebels in church and say, you need to repent or you're going to get it. You don't, as parents, go to your children and say, you need to stop disobeying or you're going to get it. You're going to get it is punishment terms. That's reserved for God Almighty. Chastisement is meant to correct bring back to obedience. And that's mercy through chastisement. Helping the wayward to get right with God. If a parent refuses to chastise, it's a declaration that the child is not theirs. That's a dramatic statement, isn't it? Did you hear that? Any Christian parent who does not chastise their children for their disobedience is declaring that child is not theirs. How could you say that? Back in Hebrews 12, A father always chastises his own children. He says in Hebrews 12, if I do not chastise you, you are an illegitimate child and you're not my own. I wish children, parents of Christian parents of children would wake up to that truth. That it's a declaration that I hate you, you're a stranger, and why should I chastise you? You're not mine. If a kid's not throwing tantrum across the street right now, are we going to run over and chastise him? No way, he's not our kid. We had it happen at the zoo many years ago. This kid was throwing this snot-throwing tantrum. It was unbelievable. Nuclear bomb tantrum. It was right around the seals. You know, we were standing. This kid was rolling on the stairs. He acting like he was a seven-year-old, demon-possessed little brat. just rah, you're going crazy, and we just looked at each other. It's not our kid. Christian parents says, oh, I don't spank my children because I believe in freedom and mercy. You're behaving like that's not even your child. Treating them as an illegitimate children. Terrible. Ephesians 6, we'll close with this. I obviously am not going to finish this series today. Who was I kidding on that one? Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. How long do I have to obey my parents while you're in the home? Well, what if I'm 50 years old in the home? Then I'll say, shame on you, why are you still there? (laughs) It's like, I think it's time to get a life. Get out. So uh, theoretically, you know, sometime in your 20s, you should be on your own probably, unless there's something going on that is extenuating circumstances. So, so the word obey means literally to hear under in Ephesians 6, one. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. It's morally right for you to obey. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. You honor by obeying and respecting. You don't have to always agree, but you honor by obeying and ex- respecting. So may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth the implication is the quality and quantity of your life will be extended if you are honoring your parents while in the home i absolutely do believe that this is an unbreakable rule this is why we have older christian adults who were raised in christian homes and were rebels against their parents that don't live long lives that is very much the case but what about the parents the father leads the way in verse 4 and we get major parenting advice right here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's a negative command. It's a present middle imperative. It's all one word in the Greek. Provoking to anger is one verb. It means to get in the face at them by the children. The children are doing this. You are doing something as a father that is causing them to get in your face with rage. Okay? And what causes that? What would cause that? Unjust, unhypocritical or unjust, hypocritical parenting? Do as I say, not as I do. That'll get them angry. You should be acting like a Christian. When they don't. A father kicking the kid out the door to go to church, but stays home. In all, it's hypocrisy. Never admitting sin. That's another way a father can provoke a child to anger this rage obviously we're sinners as parents we better be willing to ask forgiveness even of our children hypocrisy two-faced and then if a father doesn't do the second part of verse 4 it's going to make these kids angry because they're going to be out of control a lustful out-of-control child is an angry child and you need to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord bring up is another second imperative command here do not provoke to anger as a first command to parents. Secondly, positively, bring them up. It literally means from out feed. Nourishing them. Bringing them up. Feeding them with spiritual training. The, the, the parents, Christian parents that leave all the training to the, to the church are in rebellion and negligent. It is not the church's responsibility to bring up the children. Youth groups aren't mentioned here. Youth ministry isn't mentioned here. I've had parent, young parents come in and say, where's the youth group in this church? We don't have one. Oh, I've got to find a church with a youth group. And I'll say, why? Why don't you parent your kids? Oh, I gotta have the, I'm too busy. I need to have the youth leaders take care of this. It's the father's responsibility here. There is no youth leader position at all in the New Testament. The history, the sad history of the American church is the forfeiture of parenting responsibility to local churches. I'm dumping them off with you. The Sunday school and the youth ministries better fix my kid. They can't fix your kid because it's your mandate to do it. There is no mandate to have a youth minister in the church. We don't have one. We're not in rebellion. The rebellion that occurs is if the parents don't do this. It is our responsibility. A father who never teaches their children the word of God is in rebellion. Who just comes home and says, I provide the food. I've I've made the check. I've provided the living so you can be here, kids. Your mother is the one that needs to take care of the spiritual work. I'm at work. I'm tired in the evening. What's the first word of verse 4? Fathers? Train them? Well, I don't know how to do that. Well, you better find out how because it's rebellion as a parent. This is how kids end up messed up. Bring them up. Instruct them. The first word is discipline. It means to educate them in the truth. Paideia. The second word, instruction, it actually is admonishment. It's nuthasia. It's, it's, it's correcting. This is where chastisement and physical chastisement and spanking come in, is that second word, neuthetas instruction so you teach them and you correct them teach and correct so you live a life of justice no hypocrisy same standards for you are the same standards for me as a parent when I sin I repent when you sin you repent I will go with you to church I will teach you what a leader is to be in the church I will demonstrate by my example This is what it means to be sympathetic as well as chastising. You discipline them, you train them, paideia, you teach them the word of God. We have our children for a limited amount of time in our homes, anywhere from 18 to 25 years potentially, and we should be pumping at home nightly, daily, the word of God into their lives. We are in rebellion when we refuse to do that. And when they disobey, they need to be instructed, neuthetosed, Fix what is broken is what that is. It's a term for counseling. Chastise them. And notice we do that in the instruction of the Lord. This isn't teaching them how to make money, first and foremost, how to get good jobs. This isn't an admonishment and instruction on where to go to college. Christian parents love to put those to the high ground. Oh, I need to guide you in your career, and I need to show you what schools to go to and what jobs to get. This is the instruction of the Lord. This is our priority We can mess up on everything else and we're okay, but we mess up on teaching them the word of God and correcting them from the word, we're in big trouble. And this instruction then includes not just instructing them and disciplining them with the word, but rewarding them for their obedience at times. And Christians should know the difference between a reward and a bribe. A bribe is given to a child to produce obedience. A reward is a gift given to a child undeserved because they've already obeyed. The bribe is before obedience. The reward is afterward. You don't bribe your kids to be righteous. but Sometimes when they are righteous, you're so overjoyed you just want to bless them with some reward. Don't do it every time or they start to think the reward is coming. Just like the Lord, he has rewards for us in heaven for living for him. But ultimately the reward that we should have as believers for living for the Lord, is that he saved us and we love him. That's lesson eight. thought I'd get all these lessons done. I've only got a couple more. We'll do them, wrap this up next time on November 13th. Thank you, Father, so much for your word. It is clear as a bell. My job is to as accurately as I can Instruct in context and it is not my responsibility to make anyone in front of me or listening on Tech devices to obey. I have no power to make anyone obey On judgment day when I stand before you Lord, I will stand before you as a Christian And you will look at me and you will say Did you fulfill your calling as a Christian? And in your calling as pastor, teacher, were you faithful to it? The Lord, you, Lord, will not chastise me for the number of people that sat under my ministry or obeyed my teaching. Whether a thousand obey the teaching of the word from this pulpit or zero do, that is not my responsibility. But woe be tied to all of us to sit under the teaching of the word of God and we refuse to to obey, that is rebellion. Father, may we cast our false views of parenting, our false views of church discipline into the celestial garbage can. And remember that we should cry over rebellion when we see it in our lives and in the church. But may we with great viciousness, as Hebrews twelve four tells us, attack our own sin. Chastise ourselves and admonish others for the rebellion. For this is love to see them restored into good graces with you, Lord Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.